You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. The song feels like it's trying to live on that level, that grandness of scale there that it's trying to address. As a civilization or as a human race, we have to keep expanding the circle and envisioning larger and larger futures. And at the same time, as a Māori, it's about this rediscovering what was stripped away from the culture of this intense parochial tribalism that is based around this landscape and these people and not those people. In some sense, it's a bit of a panic (laughs) of like not being able to square that circle. But also, I think both things are possible. My name is Marlon Williams and I have a new album coming out on the uh, 9th of September called My Boy on Dead Oceans. from the South Islands in New Zealand. His voice has an old-timey quality, and he first came to prominence with Roy Orbison-like vocals and murder ballads on his self-titled Country debut. For his follow-up, he showcased his Elvis Presley croon on a breakup album titled Make Way for Love. This prompted Bradley Cooper to seek him out to play the part of a rising country star in his musical remake of A Star is Born. On My Boy, his latest album, Marlon goes back to his Maori roots. During the pandemic, he found himself back home after having moved to Melbourne in 2013 and spending much of that time touring. He was happy to be closer to his parents again and, as he calls it, in the seat of the culture. As a result, his new album explores themes of masculinity, traditional hierarchies and climate change. Sonically, it's a departure from his country sound. Instead, it's all 80 sins and stylings of the new romantics. But before we discuss the details of My Boy, Marlon takes us back to his childhood. He grew up in the town of Littleton, home to a burgeoning arts and music scene that started in the 70s and hit its peak when a teenage Marlon was first getting serious about making music. But from an early age, his love for music was nurtured, at home and with his tribe. You grew up in Littleton, um, a seaside and also a working port city in New Zealand. What was that like? Yes, so Littleton is a port town a few kilometres outside of Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. It's a working port, which means that there's a lot of, you know, blue-collar activity going on. When I moved there as a child, when I was seven or eight, to my sensitivities was still very sort of rough. Built into a volcano, so it's on a peninsula that forms a natural uh, amphitheatre. 
and allows a lot of sort of free flowing that goes on in between one point to another. You know, it's a very uh, open and elastic community in some ways and very old school in that it was a great place to be able to just walk around as a child and not have to be home for dinner by uh, any strict timing. If you got into trouble, would your parents find out fairly quickly? Yeah, they almost hear you getting into trouble because of the natural amphitheatre, so they come and sniff you out pretty quick. Your mum was a painter who loved listening to classical music, Mm -hmm. and your dad was a librarian who also played in a punk band. So what was it like growing up in your house? I feel very, very blessed in that I never questioned music as something that, that needed to be part of my life because of that, you know, it was... There was always music going on in both both households. You know, my parents split when I was about seven. But they both used music. Mm. Dad just thinks in music and he sings around the house in the same way that I do. And mum used it to be a backdrop for her own creativity and, and painting. Mm. So, I, yeah, I just got a, a really, really beautiful sense of just normality of music as a force in the house and as part of life, I guess. And you said you grew up an only child and sort of in a lot of ways had to kind of outsource your brothers and sisters. So as a kid, what would a perfect day have been like for you? A perfect day for me as a child was it being a Saturday. The Friday night I'd finished school and either gone to a friend's house or he'd come to mine and we'd go down to the local video store and probably just watch movies, play Nintendo 64 and... (laughs) And then the next morning we'd go and play uh, for our local soccer team or cricket team and then just sort of spend the day perusing the village and making our own fun and, yeah, just sort of aimless meandering of uh, boyhood, really. Did you have, like, woods around you or beaches or...? All of it. In Littleton, we, yeah, we had beaches about five minutes walk away and then you could go up into the hills and explore. You had everything at your disposal in Littleton. Did you have like particular games that you remember playing? Let's say if you were up where the trees were. We'd craft toboggans, but there's never any snow. (laughs) So we'd just sort of go down the grass and our toboggans. So we'd do that or we'd make up crazy games. Like if you kick the ball this hard into this garden, then you like are the king. You know, just all these crazy games and that's your afternoon. Both of your parents are of Maori descent. And I even understand that you're from two different tribes. I wonder if that had any significance in you. Would they have been like warring tribes mm. in the past? My mother's iwi uh, tribe are from the South Island. They're, they're sort of the dominant tribe of the South Island. To a large extent, sort of stayed out of the affairs of the North Island for uh, at least a couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. My dad's tribe and my mum's tribe were far enough apart to not have any sort of a fracas. <laughs> Your great-grandfather on your dad's side was a Maori healer. Mm. What did that mean for you as a kid? I mean, I got spooked by those stories. It was definitely increasingly as a child, it became more um, obvious to me that there was some other sort of way of... Because Littleton and the South Island in general, I mean, it's now becoming a lot more um, culturally uh, identifiable that Maori do live in the South Island. But I grew up in a very sort of white seeming white presenting place Mm. in terms of culturally so it sort of took on the magic of that a lot of things in the past do that you go oh 
maybe that's just how things were in the past magic was alive mm. i think i probably compartmentalized it in that way but then you reach a certain age and you you just get a bigger worldview and and then you become more curious about that stuff it's like i wonder if like there's a bit of a, like a schism going on because you're going to church and singing you know mm. in like catholic or anglican churches and then there's this other world around you as well I wondered if it had any kind of bearing on you yeah well that's the thing that I love about, and it's not not very often sort of um, celebrated the ability for I guess to talk about it parochially for Maori to um, to syncretize mm. Christianity and I guess Britishness into their own worldview. You know, it's mm. like it's such a a welcoming and holistic thing to do because there's so much discourse about decolonizing mm. and unwrapping ourselves from everything that is part of our recent history. I think I sometimes feel like we don't celebrate our own ability to to syncretize and to just blend things, you know. I think it's a really beautiful and more and more important art for humanity. It was true like your mum's tribe that you grew up really connected to your Maori heritage. So how were you involved with your tribe or her tribe? Like we'd have maybe one big meeting a year where mum and I would get in the car and go down to somewhere in the South Island mm -hmm. and we'd learn all the songs. And you go to a meeting, you know, the main points of discussion would be stuff around land, waterways, education, mm -hmm. healthcare, big stuff. But for, I mean, definitely for me as a child, the most important thing was knowing how to nail the songs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> if I could, do, if I could do that, then everything else is surely going to be okay. <laughs> How important is singing to Maori life? Singing for Maori is fundamental. You know, it's. Mm. I mean, to, to start with, you know, you're, you're dealing with a, a culture that has no, no Russian language um, prior to colonization. So everything must be codified somehow, and. Mm. Using sound, tone, and rhythm as a memory device more than anything, you know, it's just a way of committing facts to memory. And so the main thrust of Māori music traditionally was preserving whakapapa, like lineage and genealogies. Like mm. in the beginning was nothing and then goes back to the proverbial Big Bang. Mm. You know, you need memory devices to retain that knowledge. And if you haven't got written language, then song and tonality and rhythm becomes completely dominant in terms of what you need to have a library. Being Maori, you didn't think it was any kind of special part of you, but it shone out in the way that you sing and how you play the guitar mm. and your sense of humor. Can you illustrate these things, for instance, in the way you sing? Like, how is that different? Is it, I think I've heard you said some of the, there's that openness, but I was like, what does openness mean? In Maori culture, it's how you Hear your grievances and it's how you get everything done is by singing mm. so it's extremely important that the message gets across what that's led to is you know a certain openness that for me and and the way i interpret it is expressed through crooners through people who croon and, and mm. really want to tell a story in a way that communicates things straight to the heart maori singing and, and maori culture is so community oriented that it just dictates the way that the voices are embodied it's projected out to other people it doesn't navel gaze if you're navel gazing you're doing it because you want someone's attention mm. there's a functionality to it 
So what is a Maori sense of humor? I mean, I, <laughs> I was wondering, you know, mm. I, I sometimes see it in your music video. Is this like a winking nod yeah. to, <laughs> but I'm uh, like, I don't know. <laughs> for example, we have dozens of different words for, for farting, for the different, <laughs> different sounds that a fart can be. I think that's a really good point to start from in terms of what is Maori humor. It's crass in Western terms. <laughs> what it actually is, mm. is integrative with quote-unquote, the natural world, you know. It's yeah. it's going, this is funny. It brings you back to a certain sort of primitive, and I don't use that in the sort of ethnological sense, but a primitive experience of the world. Mm-hmm. Just to be able to laugh at the human condition in its most inevitable <laughs> forms, you know. <laughs> but for me, like, the best example of Māori humour is at a funeral, at a, at a tangi. There's solemnity when, when there needs to be, mm. but there's also laughter there's anger you have it all out mm. you can yell at them you laugh at something they've done for me it fits an honesty about the human condition that is missing in western culture i think now what about playing the guitar how is it mm. different well for marty the guitar is just and this has always been the same for me too mm. as when i was learning is a guitar is just a vehicle for for voices Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's it's there to carry a story. You know, it comes back to the primogeniture on the story and the words being the most important thing. Mm. So once Marty discovered the guitar, it just opened up. I don't know, it just it gave a sense of rhythm and, and tone that allowed a new version of Marty tonality to flow because they didn't have the Western tonal system before colonization, mm-hmm. but also... There's just this beautiful new tool, and this comes back to the thing about syncretism. It's like, mm. okay, we grab this guitar. Mm. What can this do to help serve what we need to do? Marty really just quickly latched on to this instrument as a bed to be able to hang out together and <laughs> to express their joys and sorrows with an instrument that really laid out a, everything and allowed the voices to do whatever they needed to do on top. And so you hear that in, in the way mm. the Māori play guitar is that it's very soft and feathery and rhythmic. It has a sort of largo grandness to it that allows full expression of harmony. So what's a memory of your childhood that makes you smile? <laughs> well, one of the most sort of landmark moments for me was the first time I went and sang in the school choir. I would have been eight or nine and I didn't want to be in maths class and the the choir teacher said would anyone like to come and try it for the choir in maths class and so I just like bolted straight out and that first moment of singing with my peers in in unison and as part of a group and realizing that I was able to express very naturally and freely in that way I think it was just such a relief I don't know I just I'd always sort of struggled with basic communication with with my peers, I think. All of a sudden, I found a really direct way to to communicate with them. So it just made me feel part of a whole in a way that I hadn't felt before. What is a memory that makes you sad? Well, I think, you know, there's that moment when you're a kid, Mm -hmm. when you realise that your lunchbox is different from someone else's lunchbox. Mm -hmm. And then you realise that every kid has a different sort of lunchbox. (laughs) And then you start wondering why they're different and looking at what's different about them. I don't know what, what it was like mm-hmm. for you, but we'd always trade items in our lunches mm. as kids. Mum always bought organic. Like she was, mm-hmm. you know, very early, early on the organic buzz. Yeah. But, but also it would be a pretty chaotic lunchbox. Like, 
you know, it's like the banana may be organic, but it's like sm- it's smushed into the sandwich. And it's like this, that's its trade value is significantly decreased because of that. So it's just I often had the goods, but I just didn't have the productivity line to like, you know, to be able to like it be a solid trading partner. I remember at some point when I was at primary school, just realizing there might be some sort of tact that would need to come into play with uh, trying to rip this person off of off of the, that bit of their lunch because I've got this bit, not such a cool thing to do. Mm. <laughs> Is it because your lunch um, wasn't as good as what you thought other people had? Definitely that. But um, I guess it's some, some sort of a recognition of a discrepancy in, in wealth and, and uh, mm. <laughs> that, that came out. I, I remember that, that being a bit of a shock to me when I realised that I remember having to sort of adjust the way I interact with people around me and other kids around me mm. based upon that. There's a sad reality of the world is that we're not all actually equals. It's one of those moments where you learn a cold hard fact of life. Yeah. What would you want? Like, would other people have like, I don't know, like nice hamburgers or just Oh, no one's got hamburgers. <laughs> no, I just wanted, I wanted, I mean, you know, I wanted like the little like package individually wrapped to like... <laughs> Basically, just lollies or whatever. That's what yeah. I want. That's what, that's what every every kid wants. That, but you got to play the game. You know? So, what was the first time that you thought, "Wow, music is transcendent, and it can really take you somewhere"? Mm. And did you ever get that feeling singing with your tribe? I think because I would go away and and do that singing with my tribe a few times a year with mum, there was a real emphasis placed upon singing. Add to that that my dad was recording at home a lot. I think I was able to sort of bring that back to my school and to my surroundings. Mm. That became sort of my battle cry, I guess. Mm. was like, if we all sing together, and it's obviously because I'm the one <laughs> like can do it pretty well. So I was like, if we all sing together, then everything's going to be okay. So let's all get together. and I'm going to nail this <laughs> and we're all going to be okay. At school, I remember seeing teachers lock up physically when they when it t- came time to sing. It's like, oh, even you guys are scared of this. So I guess I sort of found my mm. little spot to be able to like mm. do some work. Pretty young, and I can't really put an individual time on it, but it was somewhere in there of, of those school years. I found a role. You were touring at seventeen. Um, with the band that you formed in high school with with your friends. Like, I was interested to hear how that could come about because, like, you and your friend Ben Woolley, I understand, is this that third-form locker story where you were harmonising so well? Paint us a picture of, like, how did that happen? Yeah, okay, so Christchurch Boys High School at the time was a very, very um, Mm -hmm. heavily sort of rugby-focused school. But there's an incredible music teacher. And in third form in year nine, so the age of 13, first year there, and we're, we all get lined up in the assembly hall of the school. <laughs> Someone plays the piano and we have to sing the school song over and over again. Mr. Whelan, the music teacher, is just walking up and down the aisles, <laughs> jingling coins in his hand. So all these like 12-year-old boys' eyes light up as this... This cra- crazy man, just spindly little like man, is is running up and down the aisles with his coins. And I got given a coin for my singing ability. About three or four people down, another coin came out. I looked down the line. Someone else has got a beautiful voice. I could hear mm-hmm. it carrying on the air. And then 
from then, he and I used to meet in the locker rooms of the music room and we'd just sing Beatles songs all through our um, free time and our lunch breaks and we completely locked into each other and, and it was just this beautiful, safe place to be able to go to and so untouched by the rest of the school. Mm. Yeah, we joined the cathedral choir together and pursued the classical side formed this band called The Unfaithful Ways that was a sort of a country rock band and started seeing ourselves as serious musicians. So it became an incredible partnership that's still there to this day. So you get a little bit of recognition from singing with your tribe mm. and at gatherings and you also get it at school, though I don't know if that's always a good thing for a boy at a rugby-obsessed <laughs> school. Um, <laughs> but but you were so good that for a while you considered being a professional classical mm. singer. What kind of made you change your mind to go from like Wagner to like murder ballads? My hand got forced at university about a year into a singing degree and my singing teacher just, I'd sort of come in probably a bit late and probably smelling of cigarettes and booze. <laughs> And then trying to lean into a, um, a Donizetti aria, he just sort of was like, "Look, if you want to, if you want to be out there writing songs and playing in bars, then go and do it. And if you want to be a classical singer, just come and do this. At some point, you've got to choose." And so um, I chose the least disciplined path. In 2015, after moving to Melbourne, Marlon Williams put out his self-titled debut to much acclaim. While the songwriting for his high school band, The Unfaithful Ways, was as Marlon himself admits, sometimes scattershot as he waited for inspiration to strike. He had, in 2013, crucially met New Zealand troubadour Delaney Davidson. They would go on to collaborate and release three albums together. Whilst Marlon believes that creativity has its own rules, Delaney would help instill in him a sense of discipline in the craft and lend Marlon's songwriting a more theatrical, darker edge. My little blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy One day grow up and be distressed One day grow You know, I look back on some of the Unfaithful Way stuff before him and I was writing pretty dark stuff anyway, but in terms of the colour and the tone, he brought a sort of like dark sophistication to, to what I was doing. I'd write songs about like widows and stuff before that and it would, you know, be full of the parlance of like the tragedy of the old West, but I think there was just something in the some sort of weight that came along when Delaney came into my world that's been totally been a, a massive help for mm. my creativity since. Delaney is a extremely dedicated songwriter. Since then, has gone on to really embolden and enliven a lot of other artists, and locally in New Zealand, as a producer and as a collaborator and as a songwriter. There's both a deep sense of community and humanity in him, while also a, an extremely um, driven 
disciplinarian side. So it's, you know, there's the craftsmanship of songwriting that anyone who comes into contact with Delaney would say that he like lowers branches. He'll grab a tree and pull down the branch so that the fruit are easy, easy enough to grab, you know. Mm. So I'm extremely indebted to him for that. Why did you move from Christchurch to Melbourne mm-hmm. to release the album? I moved for a couple of reasons. My girlfriend and I, we'd been together a few years and, and living in Littleton, back in my home. And, and I think we were just, you know, both both in our early 20s and just wanted to see what was going on somewhere else. And mm. and on top of that, I had just done a tour with a guy called Geordie Lane, who's a great singer-songwriter from Melbourne. And he was being managed by mm. uh, Alistair Burns, who came over on that tour and saw me play and said to me, you know, if you ever wanted to move to Melbourne, I'd love to help you out. And so the stars aligned and we just sort of made the jump and two young people wanting to go out and explore the world. I lost my wife in 1989 to a certain kind of cancer left me alone in a seven-bedroom home Built upon the bones of fallen soldiers I don't recall putting that picture on the wall In the song Strange Things, Mullen spins a tale like something out of an old western about a widow in a house haunted by his dead wife. The video, which featured him and his girlfriend Hannah, known to us by her nom de plume, Aldous Harding, is charming and delivers a witty visual twist that's not evident in the lyrics. I saw that video recently, actually, that Strange Things one, and I was like, oh, we're just kids having fun, just two sort of excitable small-town kids who just, like, had some some sort of um, path to follow. It was a beautiful time in that, in that regard. It was just, we were just hanging out and enjoying each other's company and each other's creativity and some sort of formative golden years, for sure. Around this time, Marlon started taking acting jobs. He played a rootsy singer in a TV drama called The Beautiful Lie. Most of his scenes were behind a mic, and he hardly had any dialogue, but it did increase his profile in Australia tenfold. You don't do a whole lot of acting. No, no, I don't. <laughs> but <laughs> towards the end there, I think you do. But it seems like the acting is like creeping into your life as a musician or a creative person, right? And like the video for Hello, Miss Lonesome in particular, it, it, during that time, it's like, it's quite provocative. Yeah. Um, do you, you like, you appear naked and you get beaten Ooh. and thrown around quite a lot. So anyone watching that would kind of pick up on your sort of, dedication to the craft right <laughs> um <laughs> and in terms of your like acting you know your like ability to just put yourself out there for your music and also just putting yourself yeah. out there um by that stage were you kind of aware of this strong connection for you between being a musician and maybe being an actor and maybe the desire to kind of do both I think so I think I sort of maybe realised a sort of 
an unkind word for it would be sociopathy, but, uh, you know, more generally just a, maybe it just comes back to being an only child, actually, you know, just the performativity of, of life. I don't know. I guess I grew up sort of aware of signaling and, and certain things in a way that mm. hopefully it just allows me to sort of move into those spaces quite easily. You know, I'm still very sort of sceptical about the world and, and my own confidence within it, as I am with music. You know, mm. as soon as you start feeling comfortable, then you need to upset things again. But yeah, no, I mm. definitely have crept into the acting in that way. You're right. You know, I'm not really acting in The Beautiful Lie or in, it's always been tied to the music. In fact, it's only really recently properly drifting away from the music and, you know, feeling like there's... It's sort of standing on its own two feet now in some way, the acting. Speaking of, have you seen the new Elvis movie? And were you ever asked to audition for it? Because <laughs> I was thinking you have like the whole Elvis thing. There's like there's a quality in your voice. Like you must have listened to a lot of Elvis in your youth. <laughs> yeah. I, I read this little piece. Somebody asked you, you are being hailed as a new Elvis, is this something you bulk at or embrace in your response with? Like, neither it'd be a dick move yeah. to react too strongly yeah. to that one either way, which I thought, oh. <laughs> yeah, I still feel like that. Uh, which I thought was great. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, 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 yeah, I was, you know, that, that came up as an as a opportunity for sure. Um, And I mean, it was, it was, for me, it was more just the timing. Mm. I, I was very, it was mid pandemic, obviously, that that film started. And I was, I really just had found something. I was onto something at home. You know, I was writing it, writing a record. And I was really sort of, I guess, you know, to be honest, I was scared of leaving the country at that time, too. You know, I just didn't want to, I was scared I wasn't going to be able to make it back. New Zealand felt like such a safe haven over that pandemic mm. and also that quote is pretty much sums it up is like the reason you can hear it so much is because of course it's like you know I grew up on that stuff and it's and I love it and it's it's a deep part of me but it's to you know I'm I don't know, I'm, I'm scared of, I'm scared of music biographies in general as a musician because I'm worried about the portrayal of what it's like to be a musician I'm worried about especially in this day and age where we We have this sort of 360 artist thing, you know, where we, it's not enough to have the mystery of a song. You know, we want to know everything. We want to know the backstory. Mm. We want to know what they were like in the bedroom, you know, all this stuff. I just think some things are just not yours to know. And you're going to do an injustice by pretending, to, even if it's like under the auspices of this is obviously not real in a film. It's like, no, like just let the mystery be, you know, just, And something as big as Elvis, I think I just, you know, a big part of me was just like, oh, I can't, I don't want to, I can't, I can't. It's like, it's like, you know, it's, it would be the same as if I was a Christian and someone asked me to be like, be like, what? Um, Jesus. No, no, not even, no, not Jesus. Just like one of the soldiers nailing him up, you know? Like, I just, it's just a bit, it's a bit close. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to. Don't give me that poison chalice. <laughs> All of that stuff, it's like, I'd, I'd rather just let my music seep out and just, mm. you know, and just, because he's there, he's, his psychic presence is so 
embedded in the way I perform that it's like, you know, I just, I'm, I'm doing my bit for the story of Elvis, I think, for myself anyway. But I love that quality about your voice. And I feel like you've got a voice that is very malleable. You know, you, you, you can sing in so many different ways, the different characters you inhabit in the different stories that you tell in your songs. Uh, but definitely the Elvis has to be the one that I love best. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's the most fun for me too. time it came to writing his second album, Marlon was in the throes of a breakup from Harding, who is an exceptional artist in her own right. The album mined his feelings of anger, jealousy and guilt, but perhaps more astoundingly, Marlon wrote a duet about the whole thing and then asked his ex to sing on it with him. You said when you dated Elders Harden, you broke two self-imposed rules, right? So one was don't date another musician, mm -hmm. and the other one was don't date anyone from Littleton. But why did you even set yourself those rules? Well, that's a good question, yeah. You know, growing up in Littleton, by the time I was of the requisite age to be dating, I'd, I'd sort of seen enough, I've seen enough of the <laughs> chaos of a small town in terms of that, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Being a musician myself, I, I, <laughs> I know the uh, I know what kind of brains musicians have and and how prone to flights of fancy they are. Maybe I was just mainly saying I just don't want to date myself. What did you take away from that experience of then writing this album and then wanting her to sing on it? You know, because. It must be such a hard thing to do to mm. to go and ask somebody, you know, in the, the aftermath of it to go to someone and say, will you sing on this? Yeah. It, I mean, all, all of it was hard. It was it was a hard thing. But because our relationship, you know, I'd known Hannah since we were teenagers, since we were 17 or so, we'd become very accustomed to signalling to each other through music, you know, we'd there was definitely, it was an abiding sort of, mm. an abiding love for each other from a very young age. And it was through music that mm. we met each other. So it just, I know it looks and sounds weird, but all throughout our relationship, there was this language, this sort of mediator that we had, I guess, that was music. And so it made a lot more sense than it might seem to, for us to be able to just, you know, just sort of like hash it all out in the song. Isn't it strange Impossible to claim your reward I cannot explain The emotions I can barely afford to contain You're the same 
But obviously I, I wrote that song and I wrote all the words. And for her to speak to or, you know, literally verbalise my view of what she, you know, mm. obviously not a condemnatory song. It's just a, I think it was surprisingly natural for us to be able to process in that way. What am I going to do? I can see that you've been crying mm-hmm. You don't want no help from me I think it's personalness and it's sort of intensity helped it. You know, it's, it was just, it, it meant that I had something to, I had a target, which mm. was like personal growth through whatever this was. And so I think I was sort of thrown a, an, an easy ball there, you know. And in a way, it's like it, it, what's not until this last record that I've had to really battle that, that sophomore slump. After you sort of have this reputation as like a country singer, then there's this incredible album that follows in the aftermath of a breakup. Mm. And then you have this final song, Make Way for Love, that kind of returns to your Maori roots, it seems. You know, there's a sort of lightness that is like the perfect foil to all the heavy heartedness of the rest of the album. And in some ways, it also very nicely ushers into this idea of where you're at now with my boy, kind of like exploring this Maori heritage a little closer. Like, I don't know whether it was that intentional. Surely not. No, it wasn't intentional, but there's some sort of naturalistic follow through there. Mm. In terms of Make Way for Love, that song, I needed to make some sort of universal statement after the rest Mm. of that record to be like, okay, just so you know, I'm still here and I'm still open to the idea of the universal truth of love. And this is just another chapter in that story. And for that record, that was what I needed to do to to tie up those loose ends. And I do think that a lot of that spirit of that song has has followed through into this record and to my boy in terms of the lightness, you know, I think I would have had that lightness in the last record if, if circumstances hadn't been different. When you went back and you were still like, I think you described it as like this kind of monolithic period that you were trying to get out from under the shadow. When did you feel like you could write music again? And what was the maybe the first song that emerged when you were like, ah, this is what I'm going to Mm. write about now. This is what I need to write about. Mm. I think probably the song, the song My Boy, um, that was the first one that really just fell into my lap. It was light. It was playful and it was very simple and it was had a chorus that just went do 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 and I don't know it was some sort of yeah I was some sort of escape velocity of of the make way for love world that I'd reached where I was able to inhabit a new space with ease and with some sense of grace Mm. and then that that sort of theme of masculinity became one of the dominant themes on the record the rest of the song sort of came out informed by the writing of that song and buoyed by the ease of composition He's all to me and more 
I'm just trying to muddy the waters of what feels straightforward, you know. So there is that sense of the parental sort of like my special boy who can do no wrong kind of thing going on there. But then mm. it flips, mm. feels like it's the little brother talking and being scared of his older brother. There's a few moments in the song that are definitely like whoever this boy is, he's not fully in control. Is this the sense that he's not fully mm. mature or responsible, but that you're following him, you know, and that's, that's that crazy thing that's, in the hierarchy of children, the top dog is still a child, you know, but he's, but everyone defers completely to, to the top dog. And, you know, and that's how children can get in some incredibly uh, dangerous situations just by following natural hierarchies, you know. The theme of natural hierarchies follows through in My Heart is a Wormhole, a song structured around a series of disparate vignettes. It begins with what sounds like a reconnection with an old flame that goes awry. And I'm back walking the streets with you again. And each star in its place. Waiting to hear you say those words again. I'm not dressed for rain. And then shifts to an interaction between father and son that also goes south. Don't you dare speak to your father that way. That's what you say. And I'm so sad because I wanted it to stay. That song really is a, a very impressionistic sort of smash grab of memories and in just fantasies too. You know, there's, it's a real like jumping in and, out, in and out of time song. It's sort of really just word painting in a way. It's sort of, there's a few sort of real bits that I remember and then some that I definitely crafted. But it's also, it's meant to be a little tongue in cheek, you know, it's this idea that come with me now as we take a magical journey back through <laughs> this random snapshot of memories. The pathos in it is, is um, hopefully meant to just sort of lighten the whole thing, but there's definitely a lot of truth in, in it, and there's some very real stories in there. It's definitely one of the more impressionistic songs in that regard. That line, we loved you so much we carried away, but that sounded almost like someone had died. You know, it's like in my head. Yeah. It was a funeral march of some kind, but you all drank to their lives. Mm, that, that's indeed that's indeed what it was. Yeah, someone who, who took their own life, someone who built a career around his depression, and he had had a very difficult mm. life. But you know, he's completely en- enriched mine over the course of one evening. Yeah, that one of the uh, characters in that song that just it sort of scatters through. You know, it doesn't really never really lands. This idea of a flawed father figure is carried through in Princess Walk, where Marlon mentions the character of King Lear, a father who casts out his most loyal daughter because she doesn't pay him lip service. When Lear is ultimately abandoned, it's the fool or court jester that's left to show him the error of his ways. Like Lear on the By the soul, 
mentioned there, Leo, on the Heath and like, you know, King Leo being like this model of a father with like narcissistic tendencies. Also, sonically, it's quite spellbinding. The most I can say about that song is that it's sort of the, the audio accompaniment to this image. It's a picture that my mother painted. It was a watercolour of a sort of um, a jester with beautiful little pointed toes mm. sort of walking off into a purple horizon. And yes, I've always been completely shaken by King Lear and his blindness as a character, one of the most instructive and cautionary tales for me about even though you move with love, if the roads that lead you to that kind of love are shaken, you've really got nothing to stand on at the end of the day. Interesting. So, you know, in the press releases, it's you've got like a nulled family history that you're digging into. Is that coming through with the Lear stuff that you've seen in your own family that, you know, that maybe the songs come out and you you, you don't even know how deep the story is going for you, like who in your family or what had happened, but just you have these memories that come up when you write that fit in with the song and you know, that kind of Wordsworthian thing of like, you murder to dissect, let's not do anything else here. Let's just put this out and then we'll yeah. try and dissect it later. Exactly. Yeah. I think one of the things I've learned is just presentation in and of itself. You don't have to be behind the intentionality of, of any of the, these things. You know, it's because it, that's it's crazy. It's an arrogant thing to try and do. There's so much complexity in it. I think the letting go of that and the not needing to explain to myself or anyone else what it is that got you there, that's not overly pragmatic and it's not helpful and it's just not true to how the process works. You make up stories after the fact, and we all do. A made-up story that Marlon actually found helpful in his songwriting was the TV character Nina from the FX show The Americans. The titular Nina is a Russian spy, a matahari that men from the KGB and CIA use to their own ends. There's a knowingness to the song as Marlon writes from the perspective of a paranoid lover that can't trust his true love. It's a huge departure from his country roots. The song has an 80s sheen, bright synths and a pleasing melody. In the comments section of the song's YouTube video, fans have name-checked everyone from David Bowie to Brian Ferry and Ultravox. It is easily one of the album's standout songs. Does she love me? Yeah, do you trust this thing on the ground? Thinking of Nina is the song that actually stayed with me 
from the first couple of times that I just had the music on. It was the one that I found myself humming, you know, without really knowing where the song came from. I was like, oh, it's because of mm. Marlon Williams. So I, I really like that. <laughs> so it was like for a long time, like one of my favorites from the album. Then when I read in the press release and it said it was from the Americans, I love the Americans. Oh, amazing. I love Kerry Russell ever since Felicity. <laughs> oh, yeah, amazing. So good. <laughs> For thinking of Nina, like I was wondering how it fit into this story that you were telling. Yeah, I, I guess the, the thing that shocked me about her character is how many times she had to invert herself just to survive and that it became, with every inversion of herself as a, as a spy, as a double agent, as a triple agent, she lost a stake in the world with every transformation. And that just horrified me. And the fact that the world around her was what pushed her into having to make those transformations. And a lot of that, of course, was men's desire for her. The character's come from a tough background and has had to learn to use that power. But of course, it's unsurvivable and it, you know, it all sort of comes crashing down on her. So the first jump was that. That was this, I was writing, it was like, okay, I need to write a song about this. Mm. And then behind that, when I was writing it, and I'm like, ah. Oh, I'm another like white knight savior here. Like I'm just, you know, I just, I, I, you can't, there's no getting outside of the cycle. So I, I had to make that more of a character and, and laugh at that from, from one level back again, you know. But that was an interesting process of creating that song and, and that, that double movement of feeling that instant like punch of being like, oh, this poor, poor woman. And then going, oh, you asshole. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's write a song for it. River rival, no survival, it's a mirror, more than you know, bow and arrow, straight and narrow, keep it tribal, at your peril. Spaces will confine you So um River Rival uh, Bow and Arrow Keep It Tribal at Your Peril that just stood out for me and the song it's almost got electronic textures of like Bjork's homogenic for me you know just taking me there in terms of the song because it's like geography landscape river rival is like you and your own reflection your identity you know like being maori and like keep it tribal at your parents like you know so many things there <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's that's a lovely it's lovely to get a bjork comparison i mean the song mm. feels like it's it's trying to live on that level. That's the sort of grandness of scale there that it's trying to address. I know we have to, as a civilization or as a human race, we have to keep expanding the circle and, and envisioning larger and larger futures. And at the same time, as a Māori, it's about this rediscovering what, what was stripped away from, from the culture of this intense parochial tribalism that is based around this land this landscape and these people 
and not those people, you know. So it's mm. in some sense it's a bit of a panic <laughs> of like not being able to square that circle. But also I think both things are possible. And also, you know, it's speaking to tribalism in, in general as a way of, in the modern sense, a sickness of the internet age, I guess, which is certainly something that we all have to get over to be able to like tackle the big problems of climate change, renewable energy and all of these things. It's definitely, it's grand in its, in its scope, that song, and it's trying to, in a very simple and glancing way, address those things. Also, it's interesting because, like, for indigenous cultures the world over, before, like, colonials came, you were, like, guardians. There's that sense of, like, you know, Aboriginal culture here, it's like being one with the land, whereas in the world we live in today, it's all about bottom line. How can we expand? Capitalism can be a bitch, you know? Totally, and it very much loses the side of that basic thing about the human condition, you know, is that life is hard. We can't explain death away. We can't explain suffering away through capitalism or through any sort of philosophical system at all. We've still got this world in which billionaires are trying to work out ways of, of extending their lives. You know, it's like we still live in the brutal world that we were born into, you know, that despite the bells and whistles of the modern age, we're all going to die. and There's no getting away. While this album was never intended as any kind of protest album, Marlon's songwriting has always been driven by a curiosity and more than ever appears framed by his indigeneity. During the pandemic, while some of us learned to make bread or play a musical instrument, Marlon continued his studies in the Maori language. He had attended a Maori immersion preschool when he was young and took Maori lessons at high school. But unfortunately, little of it stayed with him. The Maori thing, it's been there in the background as something I've wanted to be able to compose and to express myself more easily in, in Maori for mm. a long time. You know, on, on that last year of touring, I, I did a sort of correspondence postgrad certificate while I was on the road. Being home, I guess that's been close to the lived culture. I sort of just started collaborating with a friend of mine. He's a lecturer at the University of Canterbury and an incredible rapper in Maori. So we started sort of germinating ideas there. It just made sense that I was, had all this time at home in the seat of the culture. And, you know, it wasn't like I just got home and started becoming a, you know, a full-time Māori student who was living on the marae and sort of, you know, dressing in traditional dress every day. But it was just being near it, more people around you who were able to communicate in that way. Earlier this year, Marlon went on tour with Lord, who had released a Maori EP which translated some of the songs from her English pop album, Solar Power. Marlon also joined her on stage to perform one of these Maori version songs. And on his own album for the first time, he attempts to also include some Maori words in his songwriting. On the dark end of the phone, I get scared of them, eh?
Terati Tangiate Ruru is sort of like hark, there's the sound of the Mopok, the owl. The owl means it's late and so it's time to go home. Kind of both throwaway, but also in Māori culture, you pay attention to what birds are doing. That's you don't ignore tohu or signs, as we call them. I guess that song also is a continuation of my song Party Boy of, of Make Way for Love in a one-dimensional sense, a very sort of moralistic, like be careful out there in the world kind of song. I kind of like the simplicity of it in that way. I guess across the record in My Boy, uh, there's a couple of Māori words and then same within um, Easy Does It. You know, there's just these little moments that I just want to sort of sprinkle Māori in, in a non-imposing way. Mm-hmm. You, you say you write because of a curiosity, but also then you talk about muddying the waters a little bit. It's like my boy, a lot of songs is like your debut in the sense that they were all these like narrative stories, but those things probably didn't happen to you, like those murder ballads, mm. the aspects of that that we can all identify with, but you didn't get married and lose a wife to cancer, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, whereas with my boy, it's about you. Mm growing up in New Zealand, but you're obfuscating things, you know, you're like muddying the waters. And I was wondering, like, why is it too close to the bone? Is it to maintain some kind of, I don't know, like distance and like magic? Mm, I, I, I think if you could, you could psychologize me and say that, yeah, it's, I'm trying to um, preserve some sort of privacy. Mm. But I, I think it's probably the latter. I think I'm or maybe it's for my own boys high school is that I don't want to um, lay things out in some way that's too clean for myself. Mm. I like the mud and dead ends and places that don't lead anywhere, especially in the context of narratives, you know. It's, I think it speaks to a, a greater truth that stretches beyond any particular story. Mm. I remember just... Um, reading Rudyard Kipling's Just So Stories when I was a kid. And it's these stories about mm-hmm. this is how the zebra got its stripes. And it's just some crazy story about how the zebra got its stripes that is clearly untrue and then just ends up in this dead end. But it just creates a world that you can play in, you know, and you can sit with ideas and with, where things aren't tied up. Just having the mud there really allows fuller and, and more um, rich exploration of what's actually going on. It's a way of expanding beyond the narrative that's literally taking place. Mm-hmm. There's been like a real push, like in the last few years for New Zealand artists to also sing their songs in Maori, mm. which is a real difference from like in 1999, when you had the Rugby World Cup final, and Dane mm. Hinawehi Mohi, is that how you pronounce the name? That's, that's how you, that's pretty good, yeah. So she kind of like copped a lot of flack for singing the national anthem in Maori instead of English. Mm. You know, someone like Lord understands she's got like a huge international platform now and, mm. and she wants to kind of shed light on aspects of Maori culture. So for you as someone who's Maori, being able to embrace the Maori side as well as the kind of Britishness side of it, the whiteness of it, mm. do you feel like now that you have this platform that you'd like to use it to also bring light to the Maori language or the Maori culture, do you feel that kind of ambassadorship that I feel like someone like Lord seems to be doing. Yeah, I, in a way, you know, I, I, it's funny because it's so tied up in politics. Mm. You put up the Hinewehimohi singing the national anthem in Māori. Like, it has a lot to do with politics and the culture of a nation. Mm. 
doesn't have a lot to do with music or with culture and in the most primal sense you know so of course you start getting a little bit more of a name for yourself doing things and you you get presented new opportunities to showcase things but you know I don't want this to sound sort of selfish or self-serving in some way but you know I think Mm. I like to be able to move within the world and not be tokenistic Mm. I want to be able to write in Māori and write from a Māori perspective that's not necessarily predicated on grievance against Mm. an oppressive force that doesn't stand in relation to that in any explicit way I just want to be able to explore in an organic and natural way. I'd like to think that mm. that's an important perspective in and of itself. So, you know, I, I just, I kind of want to be the jester in some respects, <laughs> sort of learning as I go and making mistakes. And You talked about like maybe having this rap album or you're working on mm. an album with somebody who is a rapper. Yeah, yeah. it's not a rap <laughs> album, but he is, a, he is a rapper, yeah. So there's some sense of that sort of verbose humour going on there. <laughs> really feel my tendrils reaching out into the future along those lines so I'm very excited You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Marlon Williams This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki and executive produced by Mark Ritfin. Additional editing was provided by Azine Samari. Additional music from Lily Sloan and additional sound engineering from Martin Austwick. Our resident legal eagle is Deborah Davis-Hahn. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfern. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com or get a copy of our 20th anniversary print issue. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like this episode, please rate the podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Follow us so you don't miss an episode. Till next time, thank you for listening. On some lonely, undiscovered island My Every time